Welcome to It's Your Hormones, the podcast that delves into how your hormones affect every aspect of your life. I'm Dr. Sahar Rokhead. I've been a doctor for almost 20 years and I'm a GP who's been working with patients with hormonal issues for 10 years. Today, I'm talking to the wonderful Emma Guns. Emma is a former beauty journalist turned podcaster and hosts The Emma Guns Show. We first met in 2016, and today we talk about PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, weight loss, and binge eating, and how to start tracking your hormones in your 40s in preparation for menopause. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Emma. Welcome to the show. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm really well. I'm really excited to see you. And listeners, my goodness, your skin. We have to talk about this. (laughs) Your skin is glowing. Thank you. Well, that's what Everest will do to you. (laughs) Yes, I've been to Everest Base Camp and the altitude is 5,340 metres. And actually, before I went, I had a bit of rosacea, which I've been treating with various clinicians and products. Mm. But I tell you what, two weeks at altitude will do wonders for your skin. <laughs> <laughs> That's a prescription I wouldn't mind. But anyway, whatever it is, you just your skin, when you walked in, I was like, blimey. <laughs> You're just absolutely glowing. Oh, it's nice you. to see you in the flesh. <laughs> so before we started recording, I was saying to Emma, we actually haven't seen each other in person maybe in what four years perhaps it must be less than that surely it must be i reckon definitely pre-pandemic yes yeah oh my goodness so for those of you who don't know emma has a wonderful podcast called the emma guns show and i've been on the podcast is it three or four times I think, I think it's four. four. Yeah. 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 Yes. I'm sure the last one we recorded in person was the thyroid episode we did. Correct. That's I'm right. I'm sure that was about 2018. That Yeah. Because I <laughs> did we not have a treatment room? And was I not? I had my laptop perched on a treatment bed and we had to turn a mini fridge off or something because it was whirring in the background. <laughs> the very technical, untechnical early years of the Emma Gunn show. <laughs> and then, yeah, we did a couple over Zoom. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been a while. And yeah. like we were saying, we see each other's posts on Instagram, but it's no substitute for face-to-face meeting. <laughs> no substitute for the real thing. No way. No how. <laughs> so as I said, Emma's got this amazing podcast called The Emma Gunn Show, and she's interviewed some really great people. You should definitely listen. I'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> um, and I kind of feel like, as someone who listens to it, it covers the full spectrum of like health, wellness, beauty, mental health, but then also, you know, like you said, you've had a FBI interrogator on and and things like that. So I feel like it's a sort of full spectrum lifestyle podcast. So I really, really like it. (laughs) Thank you. I've been looking for a way to describe it in sort of a nice little... I don't know what you would call it, like a, an elevator pitch. And I've never had full spectrum. <laughs> I might have to steal that from you because it is. It's very varied and that's what I enjoy about it. And the episodes have always come from a place of real curiosity about learning about lots and lots of different things. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not like, yes, it's a health podcast. Mm, sometimes. Yeah, it's a business podcast. Yeah, that too. So I'm, I'm stealing that is yeah. what I'm trying to say. You can have it. You're welcome. <laughs> so we first met in 2016. And I think that was, was that when I was on your podcast? I, I can't quite no, remember. No. The so first, we met before that. The first yeah. time I met you was because at the time I was working on Red Magazine and I was really struggling with weight and I just felt very tired, lethargic, down, all of those horrible feelings. And you, I think at the time, were treating another beauty journalist who I know very well. And somebody said, I think you should go and see Sahar. So I did. And I remember crumpling in front of you. Just, I I was probably at one of the lowest points I'd ever, I've ever been in my life. And, which is a huge amount of pressure looking back. That's a huge amount of pressure to put on you. Because basically it's like, right, I've had my emotional outburst. Now can you fix me? <laughs> and it's not as simple as that, unfortunately, listeners. But yeah, that was, yeah, that's how we met. Yeah. So like what I find in my work is that people often come in and they talk about things in depth that they don't often talk about with lots of people. Mm. So, you know, you might tell one friend, oh, I'm a bit tired or say, oh, I'm not sure what's going on with my periods or I'm gained a bit of weight. I'm going to go see a doctor. And then with the questioning, it all just kind of comes out. So it is 
quite common to feel emotional because, mm. you know, someone's asking you a lot of in-depth questions and, you know, it can it can make you feel vulnerable, basically, because you're maybe you haven't thought about it in that way before. Maybe someone hasn't asked that many questions about it. Because like, if I say to a friend, oh, I think I've put on weight, they just go... Oh, no, you haven't. You look fine. Don't worry about that. Oh, I'm sure you'll pull it back in a couple of months. You know, they don't go, oh, why do you think that is? What's going on with you? And then if someone actually asks you those questions, sometimes it's nice to have someone listen to it. Sometimes it just stirs up a lot of emotion, doesn't it? I think as well, if you're sitting in front of a medical professional who you know has worked with somebody else and that person has said, oh, I feel much better for having Sin Sahar, then... There's hope. And I think you're just, you're vulnerable. And I think it's that thing of you have to be really honest about what the situation is if you want to be helped. Yeah. And I think that was probably the first time I'd said a lot of that stuff out loud or even sort of allowed the thoughts to fully form in my head and then come out of my mouth. So it was, it was, and it was really embarrassing because I'm sure listeners can think about time when they've cried and then they've had to stop because they felt a bit embarrassed. I could not stop. I was trying to pull it back. I was trying to get that air into my lungs to be able to say, okay, and move on. And it just, the tears and the the giant heaving gulps of sobs just kept coming. I think that just shows how emotive it is because again, you know, I mean, first of all, like, you know, I went to see a doctor myself recently, a couple of weeks ago, because I've had an ear infection. And like you said, I think just sitting in front of a doctor mm. telling your story, and it's only an ear infection, I was not talking about anything emotional, but you have that sense of like, oh, what's he going to do? What's going to happen? There's expectation. You want to feel heard. You want to make sure you get your story out so they've got the right information to try and help you. So it made me think about, oh, if this is how I feel about my ear, this is how people must feel coming to see me and they're talking about a lot more emotive stuff. Mm. And then I think the other thing is just that, you know, like you said, that vulnerability and just getting it all out in in one go and then just, you know, sometimes once it starts, you can't quite pull it back, mm. you know, because you've been kind of holding it inside for a while. And I think as well, maybe with what you do, I think women tend to suffer. They'll put up with a lot more. And if they are sitting in front of you, it's because they've reached that wall more than likely. And not yeah. in every single case, but in a lot of cases, I think it will be like, I've re- I've reached the end. And so I, life can't be, I can't leave this yeah. appointment feeling the same way that I did. I have to have, help me. Yeah. So that was. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, like you said, most people I see, they've normally tried something already. Mm. You know, they're like, most people have either spoken to their GP or they've oh I'll get these supplements or oh, let me have a look what's hot online in terms mm. of exercise and diet and things so they've already given stuff a go and then you come and you're just yeah it's just that thing of I can't keep feeling this way like when's it gonna end and I think even sometimes you know going back to the ear thing you know the doctor gave me a time frame and he's like I think it's going to be better in four weeks Mm -hmm. just knowing that made me feel better the ear was no better but I felt better (laughs) just knowing that so you know I often try and give people a time frame going people with a similar thing to what you're having normally there's improvement by maybe three weeks maybe by eight weeks there's significant improvement definitely by three months we should be feeling this Mm. and I think just knowing in your mind that there is a finishing line in sight can often help as well Mm. just something to work towards and then it's it's expectation isn't it yeah it stops you expecting something immediate and you think okay I can take the pressure off myself for three weeks yeah and actually sometimes it is taking that pressure off that can almost aid the recovery or whatever it might be. But yeah, yeah. having that goal, having that time frame does make a massive difference. So do you mind um, saying a bit about what you came in for when I saw you? Yeah, absolutely not. So I came to see you because I was convinced that my PCOS was playing up again. And I'm saying it like that because PCOS is something I was diagnosed with when I was 17. But I started to display symptoms from around the age of I would say 10 or 11 and a lot of damage was done in those six years of being undiagnosed and we can come on to that later but when I was diagnosed at 17 I was presenting with uh, patches of hair loss so very specific kind of alopecia facial hair like quite significant facial hair really quite angry cystic acne what else oh weight gain low mood body hair, the oiliness of my skin, obviously, which is linked to the acne. But I was in a real state. 
And navigating one's teen years, especially as a little girl, and having that kind of experience wasn't great. Yeah. (laughs) And I think like a lot of people, now I was diagnosed, if I was 17, I would have been diagnosed in the late 90s, 95, I think. So it was when PCOS still was pretty new. It was kind of a thing that the young doctors were talking about. It certainly wasn't something that would be a reflex, whereas now you go to your GP, you're probably going to pretty quickly find out if you've, if they suspect PCOS or not. And so I was sent to a gynecologist, put on the pill, and my skin cleared up, and my hair was a bit less greasy. Um, and so it had, it made something of a dent. But it always felt like PCOS was this sort of enemy that I was constantly fighting. Yeah. And my weight has yo-yoed over the years. And by the time I came to see you, fast forward, what was it, nearly nearly 30 years, I just thought, I'm losing this battle. I'm losing this battle with polycystic ovarian syndrome. I am overweight. I'm managing my facial hair a lot more. My hair is really thin. I'm incredibly uncomfortable in my own skin. And I didn't think this is, I didn't think this is what it would be like to be a grown woman who like had my dream job. I was working on glossy magazines. I was, I think, doing the podcast at that point. I was, should on paper have been having the time of my life, but I was as abjectly miserable inside as I had been age 17. And that, as much as I may have said to you about how I looked and my weight, really that was the the thing I wanted to fix. I wanted to stop feeling like I was battling something. Yeah. And it felt like the odds weren't in my favour and it felt like it was really unfair. I've got to deal with my hormones. This is so unfair. When you know that that simply isn't the reality for a lot of other people Mm. and obviously what other people's experience is none of your business. But when I came to you, there was a sense of desperation of, I just don't want to keep doing this. This seems really unfair. I've done my time. I want it fixed now. Yeah. So sorry, I might have been a bit (laughs) panicked in that conversation. (laughs) No, not at all. But, you know, there's that thing with PCOS that you feel like, okay, well, you know, sometimes they say, oh, you you might grow out of it. And Mm -hmm. then you're like, oh, well, when am I going to grow out of it? It's still going on. And Mm -hmm. how am I going to manage this? And, yeah, it just gets tiring that you're... And I think it takes up a lot of headspace as well. It takes up a lot of headspace. And I think I mentioned the damage that was done in those six years of being undiagnosed. Mm. When you put on weight as a kid and people don't know about hormone issues, they just assume you're greedy. Yeah. Adults and your peers. And I was put on, I think I went to my first Weight Watchers class at age 11. And I was on a diet pretty much the entire time I was in school. Mm. (laughs) And... Kids make fun of people for the thing that makes them stand out, whatever that might be, whether it's because you have red hair and you're the only person who has red hair. And I was the biggest girl in the year, and so I caught a lot of flack for that and for the facial hair and the acne. So, And I wasn't emotionally equipped, which is a a sort of adjacent problem I had to deal with, of just low self-esteem and being quite anxious and being highly sensitive in that... that was another thing to navigate, like the attention that... So I really hated PCOS. I really, really hated it. Yeah. Because it was like, A, it makes me look and feel terrible. And B, people pick on me for it. Yeah. It's not fair. Yeah. And yeah, it just feels like this overriding thing. And then even if you don't talk about it, as maybe say as you get older, mm. but you're still feeling it in terms of the weight, the energy, you know, periods, maybe... Mm being erratic and things like that. Yeah. I mean, as well, I think, as soon as I got my diagnosis, I mean, I would tell anyone who would listen because I was desperate to say, there's a reason. This isn't my fault. It's not my fault. Please, believe me. Like, this isn't my doing. I don't want to be like this. And it was like, I look at a lettuce leaf and I put on weight, all of those. Honestly, the amount of stuff that fell out of my mouth. I just, I really just wanted people to see beyond what they, the, the, bad things they were seeing or the things that made me stand out for the wrong reasons yeah, that I didn't want, to, want them to see. You want to be understood, mm. basically. You want to show people there's an explanation based so they can see, oh, it's not just me. There's mm. PCOS who's causing all this sort of thing going on. Mm. Um, if we fast forward to today, mm-hmm. um, what I would say is, you know, the, I think the primary things you came in with was the weight issues. Mm-hmm. I think some issues around your cycle and mood mm-hmm. and hair, mm-hmm. ha- having hair loss. And if we fast forward to today, you've got beautiful hair. Thanks. And <laughs> you're looking fabulous. Um, and 
uh, you're very open about about it on your on your Instagram and on your podcasts and things. But you know, I guess people maybe sometimes think, oh, well, hang on a minute. How did you get from where you were in 2016? You know, crying in the doctor's consultation room to I, I believe look you know looking great <laughs> and feeling great now. Um, so, but it, it hasn't been like one thing, right? It's been a journey <laughs> it has it's been a journey and a progression and it was it was um like gulping sobs it mm. wasn't crying it was it's still one of the most embarrassing moments of my life just because <laughs> i couldn't control it but anyway we'll move forward so yes um i saw you in 2016 the pivotal moment the thing that really made the difference was something that happened in 2019 so the last time i think we saw each other yeah when we did the thyroid testing, because I was like, oh, please, God, let it be my thyroid. Please let it be my thyroid. Please, someone give me some thyroxine. Um, I said to you at the time, I'm considering having breast reduction surgery. And I remember you saying, oh, Emma, I think it hurts. I think it hurts quite a lot. <laughs> um, actually, listener, spoiler alert, it really didn't. Okay. I took two paracetamol. Really? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's another thing. We can do a whole other podcast on that. But I had become convinced that if I uh, had a breast reduction, then uh, my body would look. I kind of, after all those years of very confused body image issues, I really focused in on the fact that I had difficult to dress breasts. And then I had a consultation and the surgeon, in very technical terms, told me how much of a great candidate I was because <laughs> I think he used the word pendulous at one point. <laughs> um and so I went ahead with the surgery. And in my head, now, this is really interesting. I didn't really fully understand this at the time, because if I had and I had articulated this to a surgeon, I would hope that they would have said, they would have you know, rung a bell or waved a flag or a red light would have gone off with a big booming siren. But I did believe that if I got to the other side of the surgery and had the reduction, that that would solve all my problems with my body image and I'd look fine. What actually happened is I got home the day after the surgery. I couldn't resist. I had my surgical garment on and I was strapped down pretty tight because you can't take anything, any of the dressings off for yeah. quite a while. And I looked in the mirror and you know when Homer Simpson screams? It was that because what I saw with clarity for the first time was that it wasn't about my boobs. And in fact, having albeit swollen and strapped down, but newly perfect surgeon-made breasts highlighted the rest of my body in a way that was quite a lot to take in. And I was devastated, devastated, because I'd spent my savings. Mm. I thought it would be the fix, and it wasn't. But I actually, I, being really truthful, I kind of didn't, wasn't prepared to deal with that thought and feeling. And so I just kind of put my clothes back on and sat down and, I don't know, rested. And then it was about five weeks later. So I had the surgery at the end of July. And then I was hosting a podcast uh, for Estee Lauder companies. Every October they do uh, breast cancer awareness. And Elizabeth Hurley has been the ambassador for many, many years. And I've been to many of those events. And on this particular occasion, they asked me to host a live podcast with Elizabeth, Dr. Zoe Williams and my friend Lauren Marne. And so we were all on this panel and a few days beforehand, we had to go to Estee Lauder HQ and do a photo shoot. Seems very simple. But on that day, uh, we were in this little studio having a group of four picture taken. And somebody from the press office or wherever leaned in through the door and on an iPhone took a picture of the group and put it on social media. And I was horrified. I was tagged in it. I saw it. I got home that night and I cried myself to sleep. I just thought, I can't believe that's what I look like. And I can't believe. I think about my body. I think about what I eat. I think about how to exercise all the time. There's so much I've not done in my life so that I can exercise or there's so much I've not done so that I don't overeat. And why do I look like that? And obviously you're standing next to Elizabeth Hurley, mm, yeah. which compounds the situation and the fact that I had just spent my savings on quite drastic surgery. It was under general anaesthetic for a couple of hours. It's not a small consideration. And I remember... I spoke to my friend Alex Light. So she's a brilliant writer, author and body acceptance activist. And we've been friends for a while. And I messaged her and I said something like, um, 
this happened today. I'm I'm terrified to eat. I'm so scared. I can't believe. I'm why what how, how did I not know? How did I not know that I looked like this? And she's brilliant. She very gently, very carefully talked me off the ledge. Said that I needed to find myself. She said, "Get yourself something really nourishing for dinner. Fight like get a really lovely meal and eat it and enjoy every single mouthful." So she was really she was really wonderful. But a few months prior. She had been on my podcast and we had talked about her journey with her body and um, eating disorder, which is which was really significant. And she really had to fight for herself to come back from that. And at the end of the conversation, which I had found quite confronting, she had mentioned this book called Brain Over Binge by Catherine Hansen. And she had suggested I read it. And I really like Alex. I'm incredibly fond of her, but I wanted to punch her in the face. <laughs> because even the idea of you might need a book called Brain Over Binge, I found insulting. And I also didn't think I had an eating disorder because I didn't purge. I um, didn't restrict in a way that I thought was particularly unhealthy. And so I didn't have any... My behaviours around food didn't bear any of the hallmarks of an eating disorder as I understood it to be. But after that photo shoot, I thought, I really need that goddamn book. So I, I ordered it straight away and I read it in one session. I actually it arrived. I started reading it. I put it down. And I thought, right, I'm cancelling the rest of my day. Wow. <laughs> and I went round the corner and I went to the shop and I bought some highlighters and I just sat and read it. And as I was reading, it, I was highlight. I'd read it and then I'd go back and think, I, I never, I can never forget that paragraph. So the, the entire book pretty much is just highlighted. <laughs> so much of it just kind of... And I definitely understood from that book that I had something resembling, but not entirely binge eating disorder. So it's where you... You have periods of binging with no effort to purge or what have you. It wasn't clear-cut case of it, but it was something resembling that. And I read it, and I went to bed that night, and I woke up, and it was like I'd had a software update. I fundamentally had a different relationship and understanding of what was really going on. And what was really going on is I had an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food where I wouldn't keep food in the house because I was too scared I'd eat it. If I did have food in the house, I would eat it. So that was what I was basing that on. I would restrict. I would I would feel that if I could go as long as possible without eating, then that would validate eating something big in the evening or it didn't matter what I ate. So I didn't have a sensible, rational relationship with something that I had to consume every single day for survival. And it just really highlighted that to me but in and amongst all of that I think a lot of thoughts and feelings that I'd kept in the dark even from me that book made me confront them and brought them out into the light and once they're out into the light they were actually much easier to navigate my way around and understand and so I just I just got a, an understanding of what was going on and this is going to sound really counterintuitive but my initial reaction especially when I saw that picture with Elizabeth was to run five kilometers every day and restrict my calories to 1200 because mm. if you go into my fitness pal for example and you say you want to lose two pounds a week they're probably gonna hit you there yeah not too far off that right yeah, yeah. and I just knew like as I said I've done Weight Watchers I've done Dukan I've done Atkins I've done tried keto I've tried everything and in my job in the health and beauty space, I have access to these things first a lot of the time. So I've got all of these diets swimming around my brain mm. at all times. And that just becomes really confusing. It becomes really unnecessary noise. And there was part of me that was ready. I was like, fine, I'll do the running again. I'll do the running. I'll do the dieting. And something within me just thought, I, I simply cannot. I simply cannot do that again. I'm going to lean really, really hard on science. And that did mean getting into a calorie deficit, but a sensible mm. one where I wasn't going to feel restricted and where I wouldn't get to the end of a day and think, I'm so hungry, and then eat whatever was left yeah. that wasn't nailed down. It was like, let's get into a sensible calorie deficit. I didn't want to snack either. I just thought, I've, I remember reading Amelia Freer's book ages ago, and I think she did a whole uh, introduction in one of her books about how snacking was kind of almost like something that the uh, breakfast cereal industry came up with, so that you'd buy cereal bars. But mm. this whole thing about your blood sugar and whatever was kind of a nonsense. If you were feeding yourself appropriately with the yeah. right nourishment at every mealtime, you should be good to go. 
So I just leaned really hard on that. And instead of going hell for leather and running, because I think when we saw each other, I used to run a lot. Mm. And I thought, nope, I'm going to do weight training three times a week. I'm going to, in my home, just got my kettlebells and my dumbbells. And I'm going to do one lower body workout, one upper body workout and one full body workout a week. And I'll make sure that I'm walking. And I try to walk between ten and 12,500 steps a day. Yeah, I walk everywhere. I'm in London today. I'm not using the tube. I'm walking everywhere. Yeah. And that has, and it's those things that have been the change. So it isn't a magic bullet that I always hoped it would be. It isn't you very generously passing me a prescription and winking and saying, <laughs> give it two weeks, love. You're <laughs> Although I know that's happening in the States at the moment, but we can talk about that another time. But I was expecting it to be a magic bullet. And I think what that book did for me and the reason why I sit in front of you today and I'm not sobbing and hoping that you'll give me some drugs <laughs> is because something shifted and it was okay I just need to it's consistent effort over time equals results I just need to change these behaviors swap these behaviors to these behaviors mm. and if I'm consistent with those I'll elicit results and I based it on science mm. it was just science if you're doing um, strength training especially as a woman I'm in my 40s mid 40s like perimenopause is definitely trying to get a hold of me <laughs> It's good for me to build muscle right now. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So if I'm doing that strength training, if I'm making my body stronger, building more muscle, uh, which makes me more meta metabolically efficient, although I'm sure you, you can correct any of my bad <laughs> science, that's, that's just, that's sound. And if that goes in conjunction with the science of nourishing myself yeah. within my energy limits, and that takes a while kind of understanding what, a def what deficit works for you. Yeah, it does. Um, then then I, I just have to trust in that. And I'm going to stop hoping for a quick fix. And I'm going to stop looking for like the scale weight to go down consistently. It's my behaviours. Mm. And so that is the story. <laughs> That's very eloquently put. Thank you. Um, I think that there's so much there that you said that, you know, resonated and I'd want to pick up on. But I think I think the biggest thing is, you know, first of all, you were consistent um, second of all, you were like in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do this four week diet and drop a stone. It's like, no, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm looking at habits and changing habits. And it is really hard with food, I think, particularly because I, like, you know, say if you've got a problem with alcohol, you can just stop drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. You've got to eat to survive. You know, you can't just go, I'm never going to eat again. You still have to eat. And there are so many more triggers around food basically mm. and then there's also so much misinformation about what's healthy oh my what gosh, isn't yeah. healthy you know like you said yo i'm going to you know i'm going to be keto oh i'm going to be carb free oh, i'm going to go paleo and you're just like so much out there and i you know patients come to me and they say oh i don't know which one to do and what i normally say is well you've probably done quite a few before because, you know, we're women and we've all <laughs> tried lots of different things, although I know men do have issues with food as well. And I said, well, what do you feel your best in? Mm. Because that's what you should be doing. You know, is it when you're eating lots of salads with protein? Is it when you're, you know, having balanced meals, sort of like dividing your plate into thirds and having third carbs, veg, protein? And I say, just listen to your body because mm. we've got we've got so much information that we get bombarded with we forget to listen to our own intuitive self and we've all at times even if you've got issues with your weight where you have felt good with what you're eating mm. and you know maybe you've had a summer or you've been really on it for like a few months or whatever but also it has to be something sustainable that's that's honestly the key. Yeah. There's no point. Of, look, every single diet program out there, it's why the diet industry is worth billions. Yeah. They're going to enforce a way of eating that gets you great results. So yeah. that in those first four weeks, you're saying to your friends, oh, you're never going to guess what. Look at this. You're getting your waistband. You're yeah. showing how much. And actually, that, that, can, that can't go on forever. It really is, I, I think. And I, I feel that, again, all those diets, they... They almost like you buy when you sign up for them because you have to sign up for them. You have to pay your money. They put they put on glasses. They put on a filter over you. And it's like, now you see food through our filter. Mm. So it's points or it's colours or it's sins or it's yeah. all of these different things. But what that actually does, it's really disempowering because it takes you, it, it removes you one step from actually nutrition 
And calories, don't get me wrong, I've spoken to many nutritionists about this. Every single one of them will say they're not an ideal metric by any stretch of the imagination. They are imperfect, but in terms of science, they are the best that we've got. Yeah. And obviously, I remember having Gillian Michaels on my podcast and she said, look, the fact is you could eat 1500 calories and you could have three square meals and be eating salmon and steamed veg and that that sort of component treat or diet. You could eat 1500 calories of sweets from yeah. the garage. So three Big Macs, about 1500 calories, I think. Oh, I'm just, I bet you it's only two. Um, and you could eat that consistently. One diet is going to make you feel terrible. One's going to make you feel good. But if you're in a calorie deficit, both are going to make you lose weight. Yeah. And it's you. It's it's having that agency and making those choices. Mm. My friend over lockdown lost a lot of weight consciously. Mm. And um, he's, he's a man. And he decided, I think, to drop his calories to 1,300, which is really low for, for a, a guy, man yeah. uh, who's also physically active and, you know, who's still doing walks in, in the Brecon Beacons because that's <laughs> where he lives and things. He's just being active. And so he lost a lot of weight over that lockdown. And he's, he's pretty much kept the weight off as well, which is amazing. But he's obviously not on 1,300 calories anymore. Mm. He wanted to do a short sharp burst he was very motivated but he still calorie counts and that's you know maybe he's on holidays he's not calorie counting then he comes back and he's like oh I'm going to drop my calories to 1600 for a a few weeks and and so you know he is aware of it and Mm -hmm. it becomes a way of life and you know you do get an increase of weight gain in the menopause that that is part of it sorry (laughs) (laughs) I'm in denial (laughs) Not everyone does. A lot of people do. But one of the reasons for it is you get a a metabolic change because your Mm. hormone levels have changed. But the other reason is, you know, I had a patient who we, we talked about it a few months ago and I said, do you know what your baseline calorie count is? Mm. And I would say, why don't you just start with the baseline, maybe on my fitness pal or something, just so you know how many calories you're consuming. And then you can look at altering it by maybe just 200, 300 calories a day. And she said, but I'm not someone who needs to calorie count. And I said, well you are now and we should just be so grateful that up until now you have not had to count your calories Mm. you're so lucky that you've Mm. had that baseline but now perhaps we do need to tighten up on the calorie counting and um yes some people are really resistant to the old calorie counting they've been really demonized and i dare i say weaponized but but really it, it is that thing of again quote Gillian michaels i spoke to her and she said it's like being born rich or being born poor your metabolic your base metabolic rate is kind of a fundamental factory setting. You yeah. can you can uh, affect it, like we said, by building muscle and yeah. what have you. But fundamentally, some people it's really low. Some people it's much higher. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's how that's kind of what you're dealt. And I think for a long time, I thought that it was unfair that it was harder for me. Yeah. In fact, when actually, what I found really empowering was kind of saying, "Well, this is my situation, so I'm not going to moan about it. Yeah. I'm going to work within it." And that, again, sort of stops all of those times I would say, but I eat pretty much the same as my friend, yeah. don't you? But yeah, you probably find that your friend walks maybe five to 6,000 more steps than you just naturally. She just gets up more. Yeah. Things like that. And it will be, if you look at the lifestyle element of people's habits, you'll often find that those people who are naturally slim are also just naturally way more active. Yeah. Or naturally eat a bit less. Mm. Definitely. So I am of the slower metabolism myself. Mm. And then, again, you know, as I understand it's also that bugbear when you're growing up. Well, well, why do... And I think that's the other thing, you know, growing up, to lose weight, you were always told, oh, 1,200 calories mm. or less. Mm. And then that sticks with you as you become an adult. Well, I need to be eating 1,200 calories. Well, I did try it for a few days, a few years ago, and I'm like, I'm starving. And then you're like, well, I've changed. My body's changed and probably need to increase my calorie count rather than starving myself all day and then binging in the evening. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that, you know, I've found is that Say if I go out with some girlfriends who are more naturally slim than me, or maybe not naturally slim, but they're slimmer than me. Mm. But I notice their eating habits are different to mine. Mm-hmm. So whereas I'd be like, oh, well, we're out. Let's have the bread. Why not? Mm-hmm. Should we get some olives? Why not? Get some olives. We're having dinner. Well, I'm out for dinner. May as well get some chips. You know, what do you mean no pudding? And I'm like, well, they eat differently mm. to how I eat. And I feel like if I go out for dinner, say, you know, once a month, then that would be fine. But, you know, 
live in London, go out for dinner several times a week. You can't eat like that every time you go out. Mm. And it's about really sort of facing yourself with that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I think it absolutely is. I think there is that thing of, I was saying to someone earlier, that one of the things that I found really empowering in that book was the higher brain versus the lower brain. So the lower brain is the one that will say, Emma, go into the kitchen, go and make pancakes. Emma, you've got some rice and some... I mean, I was a kitchen alchemist. I could go in there and I would eat junk. I really would. And I'm not mm. proud to say that I would eat junk. I, If I had an egg and some flour, it's like I could make stuff and I would just make it and almost on autopilot eat it. And actually what I found really empowering from that book was that urge comes from the lower brain mm. and the higher brain is the one that stands you up gets you into the kitchen measures out the ingredients and stuff and the higher brain can tell the lower brain to shut up and as soon as I had that formula every time I sit down after dinner I'm watching TV and I'm perfectly happy and then all of a sudden out of nowhere this thought will pop into my head of of go and eat something yeah I can just go hush your mouth and carry on with what I'm doing. Yeah. And I can push it to one side. And I think we've got into this really interesting space. Interesting meaning there's a lot of discussion around it of like, if you want the donut, eat it. Yeah. Not always. Sorry, oh, yeah. I disagree with that. Not always. There's actually no nutritional value to a donut. It mm. is a pleasure thing. So yeah, absolutely have it. But this idea of if you want the donut, have the donut. That's a really small part of a much bigger Yeah jigsaw piece of all of your behaviours around food and the decisions that you get to make for your health. I mean, have it if you want it, but then know that there's a consequence to that. So, you know, everything's got a payoff, Mm. right? So if you want to have the donut, have the donut. If it's late at night, you might not sleep as well because you've had loads of sugar. If you're trying to lose weight, it's going to impact that. So I think it's about knowing, you know, every action has a consequence. Mm -hmm. And... um, I went to a, a talk last week with um, you know, you know, young Pueblo from yes. from, in, from Instagram. From Instagram. <laughs> he was being interviewed by Vex King, and yeah. it, was, it was awesome. And he was talking about self love, and they were saying this exact thing: self love has become a buy that handbag, mm. eat the donut, indulge, indulge, yeah, indulge. Self love, and he has self love. He thinks is I. I'm going to get the quote wrong, but basically knowing what you have to do and doing it to become your best self, Mm -hmm. that's true self-love, not Mm -hmm. going, oh, I'm just going to eat the cake or whatever. But knowing, no, that's not so good for me. As an act of self-love, I'm going to say no to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been listening to a lot of Gabo Mate recently as well on on podcasts and um, he's got a new book out and, you know, very much he's saying like, you know, this sort of, urge addiction you know it's coming from some other place yeah. and if you can just sit with yourself even for five ten minutes and try and figure out where it's coming from what else are you craving that you're craving the sweetness mm-hmm. you know where where's the sweetness lacking in your life maybe and looking at it from that point of view it can make a big difference 100 percent. and at the beginning of this year i did a meditation course and actually earlier on today i was having lunch with my meditation teacher and one of the things, uh, so it's Vedic meditation, mm. so it's 20, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. And I absolutely know that when I meditate in the afternoon, and spoiler alert, I've actually had to confess to my teacher, Gillian, that I've been really struggling with the afternoon meditations because I'm just a bit too wired and I can't really focus. And I said, but it's weird because I know that if I have that afternoon meditation, especially if I'm working from home and I kind of do it as I'm logging off, And then I go and think, right, what am I going to have for dinner? The choice I make will be so different from if I haven't done the meditation. If I haven't done the meditation, I am looking for a (laughs) thrill-seeking nutritional adventure. I want some sweetness. I want crunchiness. Mm. I want maybe some cheese. Like, you know, all of those things. If I do that meditation, I will be drawn to an entirely different type of meal And the type of meal that I'm drawn towards if I've meditated is absolutely one that is lean protein and green vegetables. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt. So it's in my interest to to unpick that sometimes. And so recently I was was feeling a little little bit under the weather the last two weeks. And I don't know about you, but whenever I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, I immediately want hot buttery toast. Comfort food. (laughs) I want hot cross buns, salted butter, jam. Like that's what my brain is like, just flashing images at me all day. And I was about to, I was like, oh, screw it. I obviously need this. I obviously want this. So I was about to go to the supermarket to go and stock up. And I thought, hang on a minute. 
Is this real hunger? Okay, those crumpets, that what I'm, what I'm about to go and buy, let's just say, for argument's sake, is about 400 calories. Do I want the equivalent, which is, um, say, like a load of Greek yogurt with some fruit and some other bits and bobs and like some protein powder or anything? If they were both there, am I hungry where I'd eat either of them? And it wasn't. It was a hunger for the sweetness. So I was like, okay, well, that's not real hunger then. That's because I'm feeling a bit run down. That's because I'm tired. So I need to address that, not feed what I think it's trying to tell me. Yeah. And I think that's always quite a good measure if ever I'm like, oh, I really fancy something naughty, although I obviously hate saying yeah. that it's naughty because sometimes it's completely appropriate. Mm. I love my pano raisins. They're my absolute treat. I love doing it. I, I love eating those on a Friday when I go for it with my friend. But I don't want to do it all the time. Yeah. So if I do have that thing of, oh, I really fancy it, I'm like, do you fancy the bowl of yogurt with the fruit and the nuts? And if I do, then I'm like, okay, well, I'll have that because obviously I'm hungry. But if I don't, mm. then it's like I can kind of push that urge to one side and ride it out. And nine times out of ten, the ur- that urge does go away. Yeah. I see it a lot now with the weight loss medication that's available. And um fascinated. <laughs> fascinated. Ozempic. Yeah, Ozempic. And my colleague described it as he feels like a lot of people are doing food versus Ozempic. They're just like <laughs> basically saying, how much can I eat and what can I eat and not put on weight? And I think with some people, there's an element of that where it's like, well, I don't think I need to take responsibility for what I eat anymore because I'm taking Ozempic. So I can just eat whatever I want and I'll eat a bit less and I won't put on weight and I'll, I'll lose weight. And what I see with Ozempic prescriptions In some ways, I do think it's a good thing because I feel like there are people Mm -hmm. who genuinely do struggle to lose weight and you do see it in the menopause where you get that big weight gain Mm -hmm. and, you know, you already feel, well, I'm just going to say, a lot of people feel terrible Mm -hmm. and you feel terrible about yourself. It affects your self-esteem. Oh, 100%. Yeah, so if you can just feel a little bit better in the way you look and Mm -hmm. the way your body feels, then that's a a positive. And I said, well, we'll do it alongside the hormones. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you're feeling a bit better, you can, you know, more energy to exercise. When you feel terrible, you make bad food choices. When you start losing weight, you can make better food choices. I think for that sort of situation, it's really good. And I have had patients who are like, I am literally doing everything, but because of the change in metabolism, I can't lose the weight I've put on. Mm -hmm. And it's really worked well. Where it doesn't work as well is where people are doing food versus Ozempic, basically. So you mean it's taking it as giving them licence to eat in a way that, okay, right. Yeah, just eat whatever you want, Mm. don't put on weight, and then as soon as they stop using it, they put on all the weight again and more. And that does happen. Mm. And I think it's very... So I spoke to someone and I'm like, gosh, you you spent all that money on it and then you stopped it. And because the eating habits didn't change, you put all that weight back on again. And I'm like, oh, what an expensive exercise in in not looking at sort of changing habits. I feel like if you're going to do the two alongside each Mm. other, that can be a positive. But if we're just going to use a a medication to suppress your appetite, so you eat half a burger... Mm. half your chips then it's not really going to have the the effect you want it to have that's where I came back to with my issues is that I would lose weight I'd do a lot of running I would would restrict and restrict and I was really good at being I mean I don't know why I do understand why because I'm an all or nothing personality but I would work out at six o'clock in the morning I would try and eat as little as possible and I would have great success with that but as soon as I went back to my normal way of eating the weight went on and it went on quickly and so again after I read that book and when I was like I'm going to lean into science and I don't want to be I don't want to be this again I remember thinking in the summer before I went into the lower sixth I don't want to be a fat sixth former and to be having that conversation with myself at 41 it was like god you really haven't figured this out Emma come on and I realised it really actually had far less to do with the diet and 99% of it was about... Because the diet's going to do its job if you stick to it for a specific amount of time. And diets are meant to be short-term. I disagree with people who say diets don't work. I think diets don't work if you have unrealistic expectations and if you don't stick to them. Mm. But 99% of it for me was about, okay, so when I come out of that, where I'm consciously in a calorie deficit, what will my behaviour look like? Because if it looks like it always has done... yeah. I'm on a hiding to nothing. That is fundamentally what needs to change. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Thank you for being so open (laughs) about your story and everything that's happened in that time. 
Um, obviously, all the lifestyle changes you've made have had an impact on your hormones as well. And sometimes, you know, where there are irregularities in hormones, making lifestyle changes can make a huge difference. Mm. I think that's really important to emphasise as well. So you, you mentioned you're in your mid-40s and what are you doing now at the moment to try and sort of balance the hormones and try and keep everything going and feel good, as like you said, maybe mm. sort of as we as we head into perimenopause? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'm pretty certain it's already started. I, I, I do feel it. Um, I think it's probably really helpful that age 41, I did actually get into good shape because yeah. I think that stands you in really good stead for navigating perimenopause, I, I hope. And I'm building muscle, uh, which I, I prioritise. I had a doctor called Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on my podcast. Mm, yeah. she's. I think she's really interesting. She says the world is obsessed with adipose tissue, i.e. fat, when we should be prioritising muscle because yeah. muscle is the organ of, of longevity. And there's a lot to be said to that. So um, that's why I'm really conscious about my protein intake. And I do progressive um have a progressive overload with my strength training because I want to build that muscle yeah same so that's something that I prioritize um I don't really know what's going on with my hormones at the moment I haven't had that and you can't really measure a hormone can you because they're going by their very nature it's a cycle they're different every time of the month so I don't really know what's going on funnily enough though I was with a a beloved beauty colleague last night, Nadine Bagger, and she said, oh, you want to go and get your hormones checked? You're going to need to be doing something because she's the queen of HRT. <laughs> you basically, with Nadine, you go to a doctor and you get a prescription and then you run it past her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if she's not sure, you have to go back and challenge it because um, she's the OG. But um, so I don't really know. I think I am being really conscious with the mm. lean protein, the vegetables, but... It, it really is that. Should I be doing anything else? Should I be conscious of anything else? Well, what I would do is uh, maybe start tracking your cycle, as in not just when you're on your period, although that's obviously important, see if it's changing in length or heaviness or PMS type mm. things, but maybe just tracking it throughout the month and going, well, what's my energy like? So I think the key areas that I always say to track is energy, mood, sleep, bloating and then any changes in like skin and and hair and things like that as well so is luteal phase bloating a thing oh it can be yeah oh my goodness then okay so i have i've definitely experienced that so in the second half of my cycle i my gut can be like a blown up balloon mm. it is so uncomfortable it's been so bad recently and the thing is as well body image issues that obviously we've talked for a while now mm. you kind of guess that these things have been embedded for a long time yeah when I bloat there's a part of my brain that doesn't understand that I'm not fat yeah and it because it looks like my stomach used to yeah and so it can really make me spiral mm. and so and yeah. in the luteal phase the mood isn't as good mm. so you can't be as rational <laughs> so that's the other reason why you feel like oh my gosh everything's falling apart because you don't feel as good you don't feel as resilient maybe as mm. other times of the month yeah whereas i think to talk about that resilience i think for anyone who's listening to this and has resonated anything about weight has resonated with them is I, I let go of the scale weight yeah. a long time ago. Just go on the clothes. No, I I weigh myself. Okay. And I wish it was 20 pounds lighter. But I also know that if I, to get to that 20 pounds, I have to make changes that I just, yeah. I couldn't, I don't think I could You haven't got maintain. 20 pounds to lose, by the way. <laughs> I think I have, but <laughs> there's a table between us, you can't. Someone, do you know, someone actually messaged me on um, Facebook the other day and I, there was a picture of me sitting next to James Smith uh, yeah. who, when we talked about this to her and I, and um, someone commented based on that picture, are you sure you don't have lipedema in your legs? Oh my God. I I have a chunky lower half. I'm I will own it. Like, but I was like, no jam. I haven't thought about that. Um, thanks for thanks for asking me whether I have an abnormal storage of fat. But enjoy your day. Um, but in, what I mean by letting go of the scale weight is, if I get on the scales and I've put on two pounds, which I have recently, previously that would have made me go right. I'm dropping my calories. Right. I'm not eating today. I've got to be really, really careful. And I go, hmm, what was my eating like last week? Actually, yeah, I was yeah, I was pretty slack with that thing. That makes sense. Mm. I won't do that this week. Yeah. 
So it's, it comes from a much calmer place. And I think with the scale weight, like when you were mentioning um, the thing, the calories that we were, we've all got in our mind, yeah. like 1200 calories. I think most women probably have nine and a half stone in their head. Yes. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I blame Me Bridget too. Jones. <laughs> I really, really blame Bridget Jones. I've never been nine and a half stone. Not since I was like eight. Let's say maybe when I was like 14. Exactly. (laughs) Extreme calorie restriction. And I'm nowhere near that. And I've got out of this thing of, well, that makes me wrong. Or it Mm. means that I have to get closer to it to be better, to be valid, to be attractive, all of those things. So when my weight changes and it goes up, I'm like, yeah, well, I ate a bit more last week. I strength trained last week. Didn't do as many steps. So that makes sense. So mm. I can change that behavior. But then I can also go, but if I didn't know what the scale weight was and I looked at myself in the mirror, does that look good? Great. Yeah. So it's kind of like someone said to me the other day um, that they'd been doing lots of training and they hadn't lost any weight, but they were really happy with how they, look. mm. they looked. But they were like, but I'm not losing any weight. And I'm like, but you're missing the point. Yeah. You're looking better and you you feel really good about how you look. Yeah. But you're not allowing yourself to enjoy that because of a scale weight. And maybe that will come. Who knows? Mm. And if you could be, if you could look great, but you didn't like that number, you'd choose it, right? Yeah. Rather than losing that number, getting to a number that you liked, but not liking what you saw in the mirror. Yeah, exactly. So I think yeah. you have to detach from the scale weight having mm. the emotional <laughs> stronghold it can have on you. Chokehold. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. You mentioned hormone testing earlier. Mm. And the one thing I'd say about that, it's not generally sort of recommended, like your GP probably isn't going to check your hormones. But I tend to find if you check your hormones at this, not every month, obviously, but at the same time of the month mm-hmm. when you check your hormones, normally around day 21 in the second half of that cycle, it gives you a pattern. Mm. And you've had your hormones checked before. True. So if you had it done again, it would give you a comparison, basically, oh, of what was going on now compared to what was going on before. Four or five years ago. Yeah. So I've checked not... my hormones, uh, it'll be three times this year. <laughs> And are you seeing a pattern? Is there a change? There's a change. That's why I'm checking them consistently. But always at the same sort of time of the month. Uh But I'm also basing it on how I feel Mm -hmm. because I think that's also very important. So when I had them checked in in March, it was more curiosity. Then Mm -hmm. I got COVID. Mm -hmm. And then when I got them checked again, it correlated with the way I was feeling. Like focus, not so good. Concentration, not so good. Mood, not so good. And now that I put some interventions in, I want to get it checked again to see if the numbers are sort of correlating with feeling better. But you've also taken huge control of your health. Like you had a a moment as well where you just said, "I, I, I want to feel better. Yeah. I think that's what it is. I think it's about feeling better and for me it's about feeling better psychologically because mm. it's not about like well no it is about how you look in your clothes and things because you know like I said we're women and we do mm. care about that sort of thing and you know I'm still on sort of the journey aren't we all right but I'm like these things are better and I'm happy about that yeah but there are you know I was thinking today about other things I want to do with my health and it is a mixture of that feeling good and also looking better mm-hmm. I think if you feel better you make different choices and you you look better anyway but yeah, yeah everything you've said has really resonated and definitely I think for me it, it's like hang on a minute why are you eating what's going on what's what else is going on like I was saying you know where is the sweetness missing yeah you know what can you not be alone with that you have to block out by eating something so you don't have to think? Mm. And that's a huge thing that I I work on. Yeah, I honestly think there's something to be said for taking a beat yeah. before you eat. Or maybe I should yeah. trademark that. Take <laughs> yeah. a beat before you eat. Well, Jackie Collins, if, if anyone's read any Jackie Collins, Jackie Collins, her characters will always take a beat before they say something, which means <laughs> what they're about to say is going to be significant. But yeah, take a beat before you eat because... Whenever I I am making decisions that I don't want to make, something else is at play. If I just take that moment, the rational brain will just kick in and sometimes say, you're just bored or you're you're annoyed about something. Yeah. And you don't need to you don't need to feed that feeling. You can just sit with it and then let it go. Yeah. I think all of I guess the whole theme of what we've been talking about is just getting to understand yourself better and coming at yourself with that self-compassion. 
Because I think, you know, when we're doing the whole starving ourselves diet and like over-exercising to burn calories, that's not coming from a, p- a place of love. It's not making good food choices to nourish yourself. It's not coming from, I want to exercise to get my body strong and healthy. It's coming from that little voice in your head, going, you're not good enough, mm. you know. And I think that, you know, I think the key factor for everything is just that a little bit more self-compassion and just trying to understand yourself better. You know, not that you're wrong or you're broken or anything like that, but just trying to get to know yourself. And uh, it's taken me a very long time to get to know myself. But <laughs> Yeah, but thank goodness, because if you knew it when you were in your teens... What, what do you need next? But I do want to. I do want to selfishly ask you a question. Yeah. So for such a long time, I would say, oh, my hormones have made me put on weight. Mm-hmm. If I look at a lettuce leaf, I'll gain half a stone. Yeah. And I want to ask you about the science of that because I've explained how I leaned into the science. Mm-hmm. My hormones can't make me put on weight, can they? But my hormones can maybe make me feel hungrier. Yeah. And then I consume more. But I just wanted to, this excuse that I made for myself all those years, like my hormones make me put on weight. It was as if the weight was just sort of coming from inside the body. The core was coming from inside the house. Like it was just, it was happening chemically, physiologically. And I wasn't having any control over it. And I think what I've understood in recent years is the hormones didn't meant that your behaviours around food were probably different and it's the consumption of the food that made you put on weight, not the hormones. So it's definitely part of it. But then, like, you know, we know with thyroid issues, if you have a thyroid issue, you're more likely to store fat even on a lower calorie intake. So you'd want to get that hormone imbalance corrected by taking thyroxine if you have hypothyroidism. (laughs) yeah, not just prescribing it for weight loss, as we know some dodgy people sometimes do. So. Every time you mention anything, I'm just like, there are so many of my friends now that we know. How are you saying it? Ozempic. Ozempic, Ozempic. yeah. So many of my friends, if I told them that you prescribed it, you will be inundated. With, the door. Honestly, you'll be inundated with emails because they'd be like, I want to try it. So many people. But anyway, sorry. Say with your hormones, right? If you have some sort of hormone imbalance. Say, for example, um, if you have very high levels of oestrogen, again, you're more likely to store fat than burn it. Now, and of course, you're more likely to feel hungrier also, so you would eat more. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably a little bit of both, as in, you know, it's not impossible to lose weight if you have a lot of oestrogen. You still can lose weight. You've just got to be maybe more mindful of your calorie deficit. It's harder. But it's harder. Mm. So you are not starting from the same level playing field as somebody else. Um, But, like you said you've got to actually look at your habits. Mm. And maybe if you're looking at that first, and I do have patients where I do genuinely believe them when they're like, even if I'm eating 1,200 calories a day and working out three to four times a week, nothing is moving. Sometimes they go on one of those juicing retreats or whatever. And I came back and I lost a pound and I juiced all week. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like really sad, isn't it? (laughs) Because they are trying. (laughs) It's not a long-term solution, but you would expect to lose some weight. So... Mm. In that case, I'd say, look, there probably is an imbalance at play mm-hmm. that we do need to try and even the playing field for you a little bit. Yeah. But habits first, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. It does make it harder. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But I think the reason I ask is because I think for a long time I was like, well, it's my hormones. So what's the point? So I kind of I allowed myself to be defeated. Yeah. And it's it's just that it's just going to be a bit harder for me. And yeah. Like, and I'm up for it. Like with PCOS, you metabolise... You don't metabolise sugar as well. Mm. And then not feeling so good and having a high sugar diet isn't particularly going to help. So Mm. again, it's a little bit of the condition and a little bit of the habits. And that's why you'd look at your girlfriends and be like, oh, but they eat the same amount of sugar as me, but they're fine. Mm. But then they don't have the same background issue with the the PCOS necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. Okay. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> me too. Me too. I'm really aware that I just, I could feel you winding winding up and I was like, I've just got this, I've got to ask you this question. So, um, yeah, maybe you'll come back on the, the podcast to. at yeah. some point, but I've absolutely loved talking to you today. And I so said we've known each other for a, a few years time, now yeah. and uh, a role reversal today where where I I'm interviewing you. <laughs> I know, it feels very peculiar to be doing this much talking. <laughs> But yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Emma as much as I did. I could honestly talk to her all day. I think a few key take-homes are if you are struggling to lose weight, are you really being honest with yourself, with your habits and what you're eating? We talked a lot about polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, and the diagnosis, and how there aren't a huge amount of treatment options. But Emma also shared how it was sometimes used as an excuse for her. We also talked about weight loss medications like Ozempic, which is a drug which was initially used for diabetes, but it's now been found to have an impact on weight loss and it's licensed for weight loss in obesity or overweight people with risk factors such as high blood pressure. It's a weekly injection and there's a similar medication called Saxenda, which is a daily injection. It's certainly not a get out of jail free card, as I explained, and it works best when you combine it with lifestyle and put in the work. Thanks for tuning in this week to It's Your Hormones. Join me again next week to hear more real-life stories about how hormones can affect you and what you can do about it. See you next week.